Amen. Thank you, Colonel. Good morning. How's everyone? It's good. Oh, man. It's going to be one of those days. <laughs> um, it's nice to have you here. I have been, uh, why, thank you, Pastor Megan. Um, if I have not met you, my name's Jeff Kerr. I'm, and Christy and I are the pastors here. We've been gone for a while. We took a little sabbatical in July. So some of you might have started attending church in July, and you're like, who's that guy? I belong here. It's okay. Um, but then some of you haven't been to church since May, and you're like, I didn't know anyone was gone, so that's just fine. Um, we had a great break. Christy and I took some time off in July. The last Sunday I was here was the due days Sunday under the tent, and then we moved our oldest daughter, who had just gotten married, moved them to Denver, and then just took it easy. But then what happened was I was nice and rested, and then I went to youth camp last week with the teenagers, and that knocked the sabbatical right out of me. So... I'm feeling like, oh, man, I'm tired. We had a great week. If you had some students, we have a couple of youth camp students here. I was actually saying I'm quite impressed because normally youth camp, post-youth camp Sunday, students get like a pass. Like, I'm not going to church. None of my kids are here. So um, that's good parenting right there. We had a great week at youth camp. I was up as the camp pastor, which really is just kind of a, a, a role, just helping wherever I can. I led the pre-service prayer time and a couple other things. But Brooke Maxwell, our youth, one of our youth pastors here, she was really kind of running the show. She was one of the head counselors, and Stephen did a great job leading our crew of homestead students. First of all, we have a great group of students at this church. Um, they always represent so well. They represent our church, represent God so well, and we had a good time up there. There's, if you have a student, you've never done youth camp, it's awesome. It's crazy. There's lots of games and fun and stuff during the day and mud pits and uh, races and contests, and then there's times for services and a great worship time and times at the altar. Um, we have at, so it's at Lake Geneva Camp in Alexandria, our Assemblies of God district in Minnesota. That's where they go. They have four weeks of youth camp, and so our week alone had 850 students. So it's madness. It's awesome. And so, but it was, it was great. We had a great time, and I just wanted to say it was, a, it was just reiterating into me and reminding me why we are passionate about pouring into the next generation. Um, it was great to see these students. Now, you have students from small town, northern Minnesota. We had a bunch of kids from the inner city church in Minneapolis, so just those two cultures coming together creates all, sort of, all sorts of complexities. <laughs> We'll call them, um, but it was great to kind of navigate through that. We, but we have students from all over the state that are coming from really, really difficult circumstances, and this is the first time that they're, you know, experiencing a worship service, or the first time that they're having someone like pour into them and say, "You, you value to God. You are important." You. So seeing that, and we had a cool experience where. Um, our friend Brent Silkey, who leads 30 for Freedom, if you were f around here in May, we did the 30 for Freedom run. Well, we did kind of a mini freedom run up at camp where there was a donor from somewhere in Minnesota that said, for every mile that's logged by every student over four weeks of camp, um, they will donate one day of care for someone who's being brought out of sex trafficking or human trafficking. So it's about $3 a day which can provide food and education and shelter and support and counseling for someone brought out of that horrific lifestyle. And so our campers said, yeah, that's, let's do it. So I think out of the 800 students, like cl close to 600 ran several miles that day around the campground. And so I said, well, that's great. But our homestead crew, we had about 45 students there. I said, well, our church will do the same thing for our students. So every mile they ran was like two days of care. 
And then me feeling all, I don't know what I was feeling, young, I guess, I said, um, well, the first, so one lap around the camp was a half mile. I said, well, the first half mile, any student in the camp that beats me around the campground will donate another day. And so I was, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try to run fast. And I think 40 students beat me, <laughs> which is fine. Out of 800, I was like, well, that's pretty good. Except I ran as fast as I could. And all of those students who beat me ran several miles after that. They were just at their normal pace, and I had to walk for a while after that. Uh, but it was, in a moment like that, I was just grateful for our church for supporting. We had people give for camp scholarships. We had people give towards getting the bus paid for so kids could get up there. I was able to say to our students, hey, our church is going to match it because I know we have a generous church and we have money that people have given to generosity and to missions. And so for all of that, I just want to thank you for being an awesome church. We had a great week at youth camp. Our youth pastors are fantastic. They do such a good job. And let me just say uh, across the board, now I know I'm rambling a bit and I'm a little long-winded because I was gone for five weeks, but I'll shorten up the message. Don't worry if you're worried about getting out of here on time. Um, I was just reminded our staff was great. We were gone for four, five, five, four Sundays, five Sundays. And a uh, couple things. At no point was I like nervous, like, oh man, what if it all falls apart today? Because I'm like, we got great, we got a great team. And so we had great team of people leading worship. We had our youth team one day. Lauren helped us today. And then on day in July, she did a fantastic job. And then some other people in the church just stepped up and said, yeah, I can lead worship. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful because this is a reminder that us as a church is just a community of people that gather together and we want to lift up some praise to God and we want to sing praises. And, it, and uh, outside of my normal vacation character, I went to church every Sunday during my sabbatical. And even my wife was like, what's gotten into you? And I'm like, I know, church on my vacation. But I went to different churches. We have a friend of ours that pastors up in Stillwater, so we went to visit them one week. And then the other Sundays, I just went to some churches in, in the area, and I, I enjoyed every one. They were all great. Um, great message, some on video, some live, great worship teams. Um, but here's what I took away from that. Every time I was like, okay, there's a noticeable difference in one thing between every church, and this is why I love our church at Homestead, is you can have all the stuff going on on the stage, and there was smoke machines and lights and awesome-sounding music, but at the end of the day, it's a, it's a community of people, and certain churches I went into, you could feel it right away. This is a community of people. People, you just sense that this is a group of people that love and support one another, that want to help each other grow in faith, that want to reach their community, and other churches I went to, I'm like, wow, you feel that kind of missing, and so it was a noticeable difference. And every time I was like, man, I love our church. I love our church because we're gone for five Sundays, and it's just a reminder to all of us, especially us, that this isn't built on us. We're not a big deal. This is a community of people that are helping and supporting one another. So in addition to great speakers from our staff, Pastor Brent Stevens last week, Brooke Maxwell, uh, we had Jeff and Megan Merricks preaching for, like, I think the first time ever. Are they in the room? They're not in the room. They're probably running the show downstairs. So, But really, our staff did such a great job. And so it was great for us to be gone and to recognize this was all happening on Sunday mornings. It was great. We got texts and emails from people in the, in the church supporting the people who were speaking, say, hey, just wanted you to know they did a great job. That meant a lot to us. But more than that, while we were gone, we had people who needed visits in the hospital. We had people who had gotten sick. We have 
a family in our church that had some storm damage that took out their power lines and caused a lot of electrical damage in their in their house. And so we had people showing up to cut down trees and to bring meals and all these things. That's the part that I'm like, I love our church. This is a community of people that are rallying together to help each other grow in faith. So I want to thank you for being a generous church, being a great church. Um, it is, it's good to be back. Um, we're going to continue our series today. Psalm 51. So we've been in the book of Psalms uh, since the start of summer. By the way, how's everyone doing on their scripture memory challenge? Anyone, anyone done any of that? Stacy, can always count on Stacy. Stacy and I race every year to get the chapter memorized, and we might be, I think there's been a few other people. We're memorizing now, I can't even think of what chapter it was. 46? 46. We're memorizing Psalm 46. Here's the deal. Colonel said it's August and summer's almost over. There's still time. You can, you can memorize Psalm 46. That's not what we're preaching on today, but I'm saying as a church, I encourage you to, to memorize Scripture. We do this a couple of times a year with underwhelming results and response from the congregation, but we're going to keep doing it. Today we're in Psalm 51, Psalm chapter 51, and every, everybody who spoke this summer did such a great job and has reiterated this idea of the book of Psalms. It's not just one big book. Psalms is a collection of 150 different poems and songs and prayers. These are the ways that the Israelites would learn about who God is because they didn't have printed Bibles, they didn't have screens, they didn't have, you know, they had all of these, they would hear the word proclaimed. There would be people with some of it was written down and they would learn so much about who God was and about the history of Israel because people would put it to song, they would put it to a prayer and that's what these Psalms are is a collection of those. What I love about the book of Psalms is a lot of them, now they're written by a lot of different authors from Moses to Solomon to David and a few other authors in there. Some of them we don't know who the author was. But through all the history of Israel, there's events that happened, events that took place. So, for example, the, the books of history in the Old Testament of all the kings and everything, the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles in the Old Testament. Those books are all the stories of the nation of Israel while they had kings. So starting with Saul to King David to King Solomon and then all the kings after that. So you have all these historical events. But then the book of Psalms, in, in so many spots, you have uh, the, the, the king. So David, for example, not only did he have the event happen to him, but in Psalms he writes down his prayer or he writes down what he was thinking or feeling. So there's times when David was... Um, the kingdom was being, a, like a coup was being attempted by his son, Absalom. And David is in hiding, and he's praying to God, like, where are you? I thought you said you were going to do this. I thought you said that I, you were going to establish my throne forever. And, and now it looks like it's going to be taken away. So if you've ever thought the Bible's just all the happy people, like, yay, God. The book of Psalms has so many of it that's like, where are you? The enemies are all around. Why is this happening? So today is one of those examples, Psalm 51. It's David's response to an event that occurred in the book of 2 Samuel. So we get an insight as to what David was feeling as he went through this. Now, you probably know this story. Maybe you know this psalm. Um, but we're going to start it out by reading Psalm 51, the first four verses. This is King David in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. 
Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So that's the first four verses. So David is obviously repenting. He has a sober heart. He has a humility about him, recognizing he has sinned. And even the verses at the end, and this is so important to what we're going to talk about today, where he says, I've sinned against you and you only so that you're justified in however you judge me. That response of recognizing I'm a sinner, you're a holy God, you are justified to do whatever you want. This is the way sin works with a holy God. God. A holy God cannot be around sin. David recognizes that, and this is where we start today. So obviously David is upset about something, and if you're familiar with the scripture, you've been around church, you know the story that we're going to. This story comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, the story of David and Bathsheba goes like this. David is the king of Israel, and this is the time when the Israel army is out fighting a battle. Now, David, the king, the king would normally be out with the army, but David was home. The king was in his palace, and at one night, he's walking around the palace rooftop, and he notices in one of the houses nearby a beautiful woman named Bathsheba, and she is bathing. And David looks at that and says, huh, I, I want to see more of that. And so he tells his friends... He tells his servants, go get me Bathsheba and bring her here. And Bathsheba comes to the palace with David. David sleeps with Bathsheba. Bathsheba gets pregnant. Uh-oh, right? Okay, so that's where we're at so far. If you've ever thought the Bible was boring and just like, oh, this goody-two-shoe stuff, this is like, if you like soap operas, this is your jam right here. This story right here, you're like, wow, it, I mean, it gets more crazy. So David the king has slept with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba's husband is Uriah, and he's one of the leaders in the army. So here's Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, out fighting for Israel, showing his loyalty to the king, and instead David is at home and has gotten Uriah's wife pregnant. Now what are we going to do? And so what happens is, okay, David says, we got to smooth this over. we got to kind of cover this up. So he tells the army officials, send Uriah home from the battle. Uriah comes home, and David says, Uriah, you've been fighting so well. You're doing such a great job. Why don't you take a day off, go home and be with your wife, and then you can join the troops tomorrow. Great. And so the next morning, they see that Uriah has not gone into the house. He slept outside on the ground, and David's like, dude, what's up? Why didn't you go home? The dude, what's up, is paraphrase. It's not in there. That's the, that's the message translation. Um, and Uriah says these words. He's like, how could I go home and spend the night with my wife? All the troops are staying in tents on the battlefield tonight. The Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, is in a tent on the battlefield tonight. Who would I be to go home and enjoy a night in my house and in my own bed? So I slept outside. So Uriah is a man of character and loyalty unlike what we're seeing from David at this moment. So David says, okay, we got to figure out another plan. The next day, he, said, he convinces Uriah, stay one more day. And that evening, David gets Uriah drunk and then says, now go home and spend the night with your wife. Same thing again. Uriah sleeps outside and David realizes, okay, this is not working. So Uriah goes back to the battle and David calls the leaders of the army and says, put Uriah in the front line. 
And when we're approaching the enemy, fall back so that Uriah is all by himself and he will be killed by the enemy. And that's what happens. David has it so that Uriah is killed in battle. And there's a period of sadness and mourning and a funeral for Uriah. And it says right after that, that David then took Bathsheba into the palace and she became his wife. Now, there are certain verses in scripture that are kind of redundant where you're like, yeah, obviously. And this is one of them. 2 Samuel 11.27 says this. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I bet. Right? You're thinking... Which one? The thing? There's like nine of them there. It displeased the Lord. This is what happened. Now, all that to say, if you read through Scripture, and we're going to get to this in more detail in a little bit, how God can redeem even our lowest moments, and the mercy of God covers anything that we do. If you read the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew gives the genealogy of Christ, so the Old Testament prophesied, like the Messiah is going to come, and we know that as Jesus. And it, in the beginning of Matthew, it gives, well, it started with Abraham, and then it, this is the line, the genealogy that the line of Christ came through. And there's all these prophecies about the line of Christ. So it lists all the generations that led up to Jesus, and listed in that name in the line of Christ is Bathsheba, which is pretty amazing, God's redemption. So David and Bathsheba would go on to have other children, and one of those other children was in the lineage of Christ. And Bathsheba's name is mentioned in the line of Christ. Really just signifying God's redemption. God can redeem any story and turn anything around. I love that Bathsheba is included in that. So that's where we are. And notice, I'm going to read these verses again from Psalm 51, the first four verses. Now here's what I want to point out. Because what happened was, David, after all this had happened, was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Nathan was the prophet in Israel at that time. God revealed to Nathan what had happened, and Nathan goes and confronts David and says, God told me what you did, and you need to repent. And so David falls on his face and repents, and he recognizes his sin. And that is when he writes Psalm 51. So I want to highlight, I'm going to read those first four verses again. I want to highlight one thing. Notice the amount of times that David acknowledges, it's my sin. And I've sinned against you, God. There is no excuse, no justification. He's not trying to smooth it over. Well, I didn't mean for this to happen. And it just, he acknowledges my sin, holy God. Let's read these again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and what done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. That's the story of David. That's how we got Psalm 51. The rest of the psalm is his prayer. God, create in me a clean heart. Make me new. Wash away my sin. I know that you have called me to things and I know that your mercy alone can make things Right. That's the story of King David. Now, I want to highlight another story of another king real quick. This is a story found in the previous book. In 1 Samuel 15, there's a story of another king, King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And what had happened was Israel went to battle against the Amalekites. And God instructed Saul, go fight the Amalekites and I'm going to be with you and you'll be victorious. And when you are victorious and when you have conquered that nation... 
all the cattle, all the livestock, all the treasure, all the crops, all the best of the best, that most times what would happen was the, the, the nation that conquered would take all the good stuff back to their home country, and now we're richer. We got all the best of the treasure from this other nation. But God instructs King Saul, I want you to wipe it all out, destroy it all, all the crops, the cattle, all the livestock, all the treasure, anything valuable, wipe it out. Wipe it out. Don't keep anything for yourself. As a sign that God was said, I'm doing this so that you just wipe it out. It is set apart so that you know that I'm going to provide for you. You don't need to worry about taking all the treasure. And what happens is Saul and the armies, they go and they win the battle. And they wipe out a lot of the stuff. But some of the best cattle, some of the best of the crops, some of the best of the treasure, they take with them, disobeying what God had said. And they bring it back to Israel. And the prophet then was Samuel, and God told Samuel, Saul has disobeyed. And he, God even says, I'm even upset that I made Saul king. And so Samuel goes and talks to Saul and says, hey, how'd the battle go? Saul says, great, we, win. we won. <laughs> Obviously, we're here. We won. And then he said, did you obey what God asked you to do? Did you destroy everything? And Saul says, yes, we did. And then Samuel, and I love the moment, and you can read the story in 1 Samuel 15. He gets a little, I love it, because I hear a little sarcasm in there. When Saul says, yeah, we destroyed everything, Samuel says, why do I hear cattle and sheep then if you destroyed everything? What's all this stuff over here? Like a kid getting caught red-handed, right? And Saul says, well, we mostly did everything, and this stuff we kept because we wanted to bring it back and sacrifice it to our God. Right? We wanted to make this sacrifice to God because he gave us the victory. So in other words, Saul is saying, sure, we didn't do everything that God said, but we had good intentions, and we're going to give it to God, and it's going to be a sacrifice to him. And this is what happens. And Samuel rebukes Saul and says, why didn't you obey what God said? And then there's this verse in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In other words, don't say you're doing good things for God and doing all these things with good intentions when you're disobeying what God has asked you to do, right? And that's the difference I see between these two stories. We read Psalm 51, David's heart of repentance. Have mercy on me, O God. I've sinned. Versus Saul's attitude of, it wasn't that bad. I had good intentions. He excuses it. He tries to justify his sin. That's the difference I see in those stories, is their response. Because if we're looking at those two stories in human eyes, David is way worse, right? If we're looking at those stories, Saul went and defeated the enemy and took some of the best stuff to bring back to the temple in order to sacrifice it to God. Versus David got some other guy's wife pregnant and had the husband killed to cover it up. Way worse, okay? In our human, you know, uh, scale of which sins are worse, that one's pretty near the top, right? But the only difference I see is their response. Their response. Saul tried to excuse it. David acknowledged it. I have sinned. I have fallen short. And this is how we have our response to a holy God. Because here's the deal. God is holy. And anything that falls short of his perfect holiness is sin. And we fall short all the time. That's how it is. Our disobedience is sin. And it's all rejected by a holy God. 
And it doesn't matter our levels of, well, at least it wasn't that. Well, it wasn't that bad. All the ways we try to excuse it, well, at least it's all falling short of God's perfect holiness, and that is sin, and we cannot justify it. So our posture with a holy God, we get our example from King David, recognizing I'm a sinner. Our posture must be like King David. I've sinned, and only by your grace can I be justified. Only by your grace can I be justified. Those words, obedience is better than sacrifice. I want to encourage you today. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, I'm doing all these things for God, yet there's part in your life that you refuse to give over to God. Or maybe God's calling you to take a step and you're like, you refuse to do that thing that God's calling you to do and you try to justify, yeah, but I'm being good. I'm being a nice person. I'm going to church. There's a whole bunch of people in our world that are justifying their behavior by saying, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. I'm going to church. I'm doing the best I can. God's got to be okay with that. At least I'm not like those people. We have a lot of people in churches around our country doing that kind of righteousness, and it all falls short. Obedience to God is what he is calling. Now, this is interesting because those words, again, let's put that slide up there again where Saul said, or when Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. In other words, More importantly than all the things you do for God is your heart of obedience to God. Now, David says something in Psalm 51 that is very similar. Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, it's right there. You're going to notice some similarities. This is later on in Psalm 51 where David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, in other words, the thing I do for you, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. I am humble in response to recognizing my sin. I have a humility in sight of a holy God, recognizing the only way we can be made right is through the mercy of Jesus Christ. A posture of repentance is required for our sin, no matter how insignificant we think it might be. This is what we see from David. Pretty bad stuff he got himself into. And not only was this a bad thing that David did, and somehow God refers to him as a a man after his own heart. This isn't the only time David messed up. You read the story of King David, there's plenty of times. He just does dumb stuff. But his heart, when confronted with sin, is humble and recognizing, yes, I have sinned before God and I need the mercy of God. Let's just say this, for all of us, we need to have open hearts when we are confronted by sin in our life. One of the things we're going to do as a church, if we do it well, it's going to be great, is lovingly encourage one another and spur one another on in our faith. And at times that might be encouraging you to step out of an unhealthy or a sinful decision you're making. There's going to be times where we're going to come alongside each other and say, hey, what's going on here? Let's pursue God. What's this area of your life? And as a loving community, we do that. And I want all of us to be receptive when somebody challenges us. I love the story of King David and Nathan because Nathan the prophet speaks up to the king. He's not scared of the king. There's other kings in the story in the scripture. Certainly we see it in rulers in our world today where you are not allowed to question them. You are not allowed to confront them. But King David is an example of a leader who allows people to challenge him and speak into his life. We all need to have people that are allowed or able or have the opportunity to challenge us in areas that we are veering from God's best plan for our life. Amen? 
This is what I see in that story. We have to have that posture of repentance. I want this church to be marked with lovingly encouraging others and helping each other and spurring one another on to grow in our faith. Teenagers, that's why we have a youth group, is to have a group of people around you to encourage you to step up in your faith and live for God with all that you have. So there's uh, two traps that I think we fall into when talking about this idea of repentance when we see our sin in light of a holy God. There's two traps that we fall into, two lies that we tend to believe. And the first one is this. Like King Saul, we justify it ourselves. We say, my sin isn't that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's just this little part of my life. It's just one area of my life. Look at all the good I do. I go to church. I do all this other stuff. And yet there's this one area of your life that keeps tripping you up in sin. And we say it's not that bad. Or we grade on a curve because we think God grades on a curve. And we say, well, at least I'm not like those people. I'm doing better than them, so I must be doing okay. That's one lie that we believe. And another lie that we believe is the flip side of that where we might start to think, you know what? I've done too much bad stuff. My sin is too great for God to forgive. God's forgiven me of this a thousand times, and I keep tripping up. Eventually, he's going to get tired. Eventually, his mercy is going to run out. His grace is going to be empty, and my sin is too great. Both of those are lies. Here's the deal. Our sin always falls short of holiness, and our sin, no matter how insignificant we think it is, needs the mercy of Jesus Christ. However, the mercy of Jesus Christ is enough to cover all sin, no matter what. And that's the good news today. We need it, and it is all sufficient. So there is nobody outside the mercy of Jesus. There's nobody who doesn't need it, and there's nobody for whom the mercy of Jesus won't cover everything that they've done. So I want to wrap this up looking at one story in Luke chapter 18. This is a story in the New Testament Jesus is telling a parable, Luke chapter 18. Jesus is telling this parable, and I love that he sets it up. He's basically telling the story of there were two people going to the, work, to going to the temple to pray, and he's basically setting up the most self-righteous, uppity religious person and the worst of the worst sinner. So it says this, Luke chapter 18, verse 9, the first verse says this, To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So I love that it's even said, this is why Jesus is telling this parable. Because he could tell there were some self-righteous people around there. There were some people who thought they didn't really need the mercy of Jesus because they were justified in their own good behavior. So he tells the story of the Pharisee, the religious uppity person, and the tax collector who would be known as the worst of the worst of the worst. So this is what it says after that. Next verse. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one the, uh, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. It's pretty, pretty gutsy to stand in front of God and be like, God, thanks so much that I'm better than those people. But if we were being honest, maybe we would acknowledge we've kind of thought that at times. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I love that robbers, evildoers, adulterers, bad enough. And then there's the tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Let's stop there just for a second. This Pharisee is looking to compare, to put others down. This Pharisee has contempt in his heart. Contempt is thinking that you're better than somebody else. He's puffing up his own righteousness. He feels as though he is justified by his good behavior. Now, 
fasting and tithing, that's all good. Going to the temple and offering a, uh, an offering to God, that's good. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's in those behaviors where we think we're earning God's grace, where we're earning God's blessing, and when we're better than other people. This is what Jesus is talking about. Next slide. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What a comparison between the religious person and the sinner. The sinner, the tax collector, recognizes his sin in sight of a holy God, like David did in Psalm 51. There are other stories throughout Scripture. The prophet Isaiah, he gets a glimpse of God in his holiness at the beginning of Isaiah, and his response is, Woe is me. He bows down. He's like, woe is me. I'm done for. When we see God's holiness, our sin becomes so evident. We're like, I can't even stand in his presence. Sinful people with holy God deserve judgment and death. So that is what this sinner is recognizing. Isaiah recognizes. The the apostle John in the book of Revelation, the beginning of the book of Revelation. So many other times, people encountering God's holiness, and the appropriate response is like King David in Psalm 51 is, I am done for. You are justified to treat me however you want because you are holy and I am a sinner. This is what the sinner in Luke chapter 18, this is what the tax collector says. This is our posture when considering our sin with a holy God. Finally, verse 14, it says this. This is what Jesus said. I tell you that this man rather than the other. Jesus is saying this sinner rather than the Pharisee went home justified before God. For all, who, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When we humble ourselves in, in, in sight of a holy God, God lifts us up. His mercy is enough. But when we try to justify ourselves, when we try to be self-righteous and puff ourselves up, well, that's when God can't do anything with that because we think we are justified in our own strength, and yet when we recognize our sin, we recognize that it is only through Jesus' blood his death and resurrection, that we are justified before God. So it comes down to this today. Do you have great confidence in your own righteousness, or do you have great confidence in the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ? So we can go through a kind of a a counterfeit, phony gospel faith where we think, I'm just going to do enough good things to get God to like me. I'm going to do enough good things to get God to be like, he's okay, she's okay, at least they're not like those people. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we all fall short, and we all need mercy, and the mercy of God is justification for our sins. It covers our sins. It covers not only all the sins we've done, but it covers what we're going to do like in three hours from now when, again, we fall short of God's holiness, and again, we need to lean into the mercy of God. This is what we have, is we have great confidence in the righteousness of and the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is brought alive in us through his death and resurrection. We cannot carry any confidence in our own good Christian behavior. And this is what we see in King David in Psalm 51, that posture of humility and repentance. Humble yourself, and God will lift you up. David went on to be a great king. David went on to be blessed by God. God restored David. God forgave David. There was consequences, earthly consequences to that sin, But God continued to bless Israel and bless King David because when he was confronted, David would continue to repent, to receive the mercy of God. So that, to us, today says this. God wants to lift you up. When we humble ourselves, God will lift you up. Instead, if we try to elevate ourselves, God's going to say, well, I can't do anything with that. And the world will humble us when we do that. However, when we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. 
God forgives us. So this is not this humility. I want to see if I can explain this well. Humility with God and kind of recognizing we're sinners, God. You're holy. We're sinners. We need your mercy. It's not an ongoing posture every day where we walk through life just like, woe is me. Like you get to the store and someone says, how's your day? Terrible. I'm a sinner and I deserve judgment and don't even look at me. And we kind of bow down. Even though that is accurate, the work of Jesus Christ is forgiveness the righteousness of Christ is in us now so that when God looks at us, he sees righteous. That's amazing. And so now, rather than woe is me, woe is me, in humility and gratitude, we walk with joy and victory so that when people say, how's it going? Great. I've been saved. I have, my sins are forgiven. Awesome. We should just try that, right? How, how's your day? How's the weather today? Awesome. Why are you so happy? Great, because, you know, this is, we have victory in our life. We walk victorious. And then when we trip and we fall down, we, we, we sin, we fall into something, we say, Jesus, I thank you for your mercy. I need your mercy. I repent of this. I confess of this. And then we get up and we go again, joyful, victorious. This is not a posture of defeat. This is a posture of thankfulness and gratitude for the mercy of Jesus Christ that has made all the difference in your life. Right? Amen? So here's when we need this. We're going to wrap up with this. We need a reminder of this humility, repentance, like King David was doing. We need to be reminded of this when we are frustrated with sinners in our world. Okay? There's a group of people in our world that are frustrating you. Why are those people messing up everything? Why are those people, why can't these people be more like me? Why can't, when you are frustrated with the behavior of lost people, you need to be reminded of the mercy that you have been freely given through no merit of your own. And instead we say, I was lost too. I know what that's like. I'm going to reach out and I'm going to share the message of hope. I'm going to love all people because this is what Jesus did for me. So if you're frustrated with sinners, you need to be reminded that you are recipients of mercy. Sometimes in church, maybe you need to be reminded of this when you're struggling to worship. And I'm not just saying that because this morning when we were singing, some of y'all were looking a little sleepy. But here's what I'm saying. When we come into an environment like this and we're like an opportunity to come into the presence of God and worship, we need to be reminded of what we have received. And that should be like an automatic hand raiser right there. The mercy of Jesus Christ, I'm going to celebrate and worship today. Right? Even if I don't like the song they're singing. Jesus is worthy of my praise because he has given me so much. That should be a reminder. We need that reminder. And here's one other time. Sometimes we get frustrated with God. He didn't do what we think he should do. Now, here's the hard part. There are times I get frustrated with God. There's times we've prayed for people and to get well, they have not gotten well. There's times we prayed for marriages to be reconciled and they have not gotten better. I know there's people in our church that are praying that God would bring deliverance over an addiction and they are just still struggling through it. And we're like, God, why are you not coming through in this moment? But yet when we step back and we have a posture like King David said, okay, I recognize you are a holy God. And I am a sinner and saved by mercy. I am not entitled for God, for you to do anything for me. We, believe, we pray and we believe that you're going to come through. And when you don't, we still say, God, you are worthy. We have reason to be thankful because you have forgiven us. You have given us eternal life when we deserve death and judgment. Sometimes we need to be reminded of this when we've been Christians a long time. 
and we've forgotten what it's like to not be saved. I grew up in a Christian home. I don't really remember a time in my life where I was without Jesus, where I was far away from Jesus, and that's a great blessing that I've received. There's other people that your story is you remember not so long ago what it was like to be lost in darkness, and you have that joy in your heart of, I remember what it was like to get saved. What happens is we get around Christians a lot, and we get in church, and years go by, and we're like, we kind of forget, right? We need a reminder of what it was like to receive the mercy of Jesus Christ when we so desperately needed it. One final verse from Psalm 51, verse 10 through 12 says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This is King David still in that psalm. And then I underlined this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I love that. Restore to me the joy of salvation. Help me to remember what, how amazing it is to be saved. I don't want to get complacent with this. I don't want to get used to the mercy of Jesus where it's just like, yeah, just another day in church. Uh, just another day. Maybe I'll read my Bible. Restore to us. This is my prayer today. Restore to us, O oh God, the joy of our salvation so that we walk with new joy and victory, recognizing I have been saved through the mercy of Jesus Christ, so that when we encounter needy people, we say, yes, I'm going to pour out everything I have because I've been saved. The joy of salvation is in me. When we come together and worship, we enthusiastically worship because we recognize I have been saved by the mercy of Jesus Christ when I deserve death and judgment. So let's close in prayer today. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would restore the joy of salvation in our midst, in this place, in our lives. May we walk out of here today just with a joy and enthusiasm, a, a heart of thanksgiving and praise for what you have done. We are sinful people in the presence of a holy God, and we are only made right through Jesus Christ that he died and rose again for us. That's the only way. We can't earn it. We can't good behavior our way into heaven because that all falls short. We need the mercy of Jesus. I want to pause here for a minute. I just want to give an opportunity. Maybe there's someone here, maybe not. But maybe you're here and you've never received the mercy of Jesus Christ. To you, this church thing is just trying to be a good person and do enough good things so that you can get into heaven and God will like you. You have to recognize, as we all have, we are sinners deserving death and judgment in sight of a holy God. And Jesus died to pay that penalty, to be that sacrifice for sin so that you can receive it and take on the righteousness of Christ and have that relationship with God and have eternal life and have victory and joy in this life right now. So I'm going to give an opportunity. We all got our heads bowed and eyes closed. Real quick, if you have never received the mercy of Jesus and his salvation, just stick up your hand real quick and I want to pray for you. If you need the mercy of Jesus Christ in your life, just stick up your hand. Say, I receive it today. Amen. Amen. If that's you today, I want you to just pray this prayer just in your heart. You know, there's nothing magical about words that you pray or putting up a hand in a church service. The Bible says that if you confess it with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died and rose again, then you have eternal life. So just right now, Wherever you're at, just say, Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner in need of saving, and I believe that you died for me and rose again, and I receive your mercy. I receive your salvation. I can't earn it, but I receive it.
I don't deserve it, but yet you offer it to me, so I receive it today. So just do that. And then the Bible says you're a new creation. You are made new. You are forgiven and set free. And Lord, for the rest of us today, I just pray that you would restore that joy, that we would not look to our own righteousness, that we would stop looking down on other people thinking somehow we're better than them, but we would recognize we are only justified through you and the price that you paid for us. So help that to make a difference in our life, how we interact with others, how we walk with joy and thankfulness, how we want to reach out and spread the gospel wherever we can because we know there are people who need to hear it. They're still lost, and you call us to go into our world and preach the gospel, so that's what we want to do. With a heart of gratitude, with sober hearts recognizing we know what it was like to not be saved, and we want to rescue as many people as we can. So encourage us, empower us today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Awesome. Thanks for being here, Homestead Church. We're glad you're with us. If you would like someone to pray with you, if you made a decision to follow Jesus today and you want to talk to someone, you can come talk to me. We're going to have prayer team members up at the front who would love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday.